We want to remind our listeners that this program is for informational and educational purposes only and not intended to substitute for professional veterinary and medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The Animal Medical Center does not recommend or endorse any products or services advertised by SiriusXM. Welcome to Ask the Vet with Dr. Ann Hohenhaus. This is the place to talk about your pets and get advice with a top veterinarian from the Animal Medical Center in NYC. Hear from the leading authorities on animals and give us a call to ask your questions. Now, here's your host, Dr. Ann Hohenhaus. Hello, everyone. I'm so glad you could join me here today on Ask the Vet. I'm on Sirius XM Stars Channel 109. I'm your host, Dr. Ann Hohenhaus, and I'm a board-certified oncologist and internist at the Animal Medical Center in New York City, the world's largest not-for-profit animal hospital. At the Animal Medical Center, we keep families together by providing the absolute best care for pets. This program, Ask the Vet, is also available as a podcast thanks to our partnership with Sirius XM Radio. And you can find the podcast on all major podcast platforms. Later in the show, I'm going to answer questions from my listeners. So if you have a question about your pet's health, just call and leave me a message on our toll-free voicemail, and I'll answer your question on next month's Ask the Vet program. I'll give this number now, but if you don't have a pen or pencil, I'll give it a couple more times during the show so you can copy it down. The number to call is 866-993-8267. And now we have our trending animal of the month. It's time for the Internet's most talked about animal. At La Jolla Cove Beach in San Diego, California, two feisty sea lions brought a whole new meaning to the term locals only in a TikTok video that has amassed 8 million views. According to Charlene Yena, who filmed the chaotic scene as it unfolded, the sea lions were awakened by a woman who was trying to get close enough to take a selfie with them. And that's always a big mistake, to want a selfie with a wild animal. The two enormous sea lions moved quickly, waddling their way down the stretch of beach, chasing dozens of sunbathers in their path. Fortunately, no humans were harmed in this encounter. Satisfied with their efforts, the seals decided they'd had enough sunbathing for the day and plopped right back into the ocean. If you want to see this chaotic scene of sea lions chasing humans at the San Diego beach, you can just Google it and it'll pop right up. But I want to say one thing about selfies with wild animals. It doesn't always have such a good end as this one does. And in Cannon Beach, Oregon, humans kept approaching a sea lion pup on the beach despite signs telling them to keep away. And experts believe the human visitors were part of the reason the pup ultimately died. There's also been reports of people being injured by buffalo and so it's always always best to stay away from wildlife and photo them at a respectful distance because it protects both you and the wildlife from a tragic encounter in the dog world david fitzpatrick is considered one of the foremost handlers and presenters of the pekingese breed and he's universally regarded as a master of his craft and the consummate professional 
In 2021, David Fitzpatrick was presented with the prestigious American Kennel Club Breeder of the Year Award for his PQuest Pekingese dogs. This honor is given to breeders who have made an impact on their breed and dedicate their lives to improving the health, temperament, and quality of purebred dogs. With that, David Fitzpatrick's name has been inscribed on the AKC Perpetual Trophy displayed at AKC's headquarters here in New York City. And as an aside, the AKC also has the Museum of the Dog here in New York City. So if you happen to come visit us and you are a dog lover, it is a really fun afternoon activity to go to the Museum of the Dog. But I digress. Now back to David Fitzpatrick. The same year, 19 or 2021, David's dog was Sabi of the Pekingese, or as he is officially known as, uh, Grand Champion, Gold Champion, uh, Pequest Wasabi, uh, was the most celebrated dog in America, winning our favorite dog show here on Ask the Vet, Best in Show at the Westminster Kennel Club Dog Show. In total, David's Wasabi has about 50 best in show wins. David Fitzpatrick began his lifelong passion for Pekingese in the early 1970s, and it's proven to be a long and successful path with over 100 homebred champions produced, and 17 of those have become best in show winners. Mr. Fitzpatrick has many personal achievements in the sport too many to name in this intro. He's a member of the Pekingese Club of America, the Progressive Dog Club, and the Pekingese Club of New Jersey, serving on their boards, and is a member of the Maryland Kennel Club as well. Pequest Pekingese uh, continues to work towards their goal of producing healthy, quality dogs with great temperaments that are suitable for both the show ring and as a wonderful little dog to hold on your lap. They're fluffy and really cute. With that, <laughs> it's my pleasure to welcome David Fitzpatrick to Ask the Vet. David, I'm so thrilled you could join me today. And my only regret is that you're on the phone and not uh, on the camera so that we can see one of these little cute fluff monsters uh, in your <laughs> lap while we talk. <laughs> well, thank you, Anne. It's a, my, my pleasure and honor to be here with you. And we just got back from visiting our veterinarian here in Pennsylvania, and um, everybody's uh, resting on this, what, what's turning out to be a warm afternoon here in PA. Uh, it, yeah, it's a warm afternoon here in New York. Not a good day for if you're a Pekingese to be out and about. So, you know, I don't know very many people who are dog breeders, and I suspect that, but that most of my listeners don't either. So can you talk about how did you get wrapped into this whole deal of breeding and showing dogs? Well, when I was a, a boy, all I could think about were dogs and cats and animals. And, you know, I was obsessed with animals. And, um, you know, I just wanted to be around dogs all the time. And my parents, I come from a family of seven and grew up in Wilmington, Delaware, they wouldn't allow any dogs in the house. I had two brothers that were highly allergic to dogs. And so getting a dog of my own was out of the question. So I, uh, just through happenstance, uh, came upon what was one of the show dog trade magazines of the day called Popular Dogs. 
and there was a lady who was a Pekingese breeder and a handler living in Newark, Delaware, which was about 20 minutes from where I live. And I wrote her a letter and asked her if, if she needed any help after school, that I was uh, ready, willing, and able to, uh, you know, assist her or do whatever, whatever, you know, somebody might, might need to be around all these dogs. And uh, that's how I got started. And one thing just led to another. And I just loved being um, involved and in diving into the dog show world and and taking care of the dogs. And what I mainly enjoyed was caring for the dogs. And, um, you know, I just liked, uh, you know, being a caretaker and making sure the dogs were comfortable and clean and well-fed and groomed and, you know, uh, happy. And, um, you know, from there, one thing led to another. And, you know, I became a handler and worked for other people and you know, and then eventually, you know, became a, a breeder myself of Pekingese, trying to, uh, you know, sustain all the wonderful qualities that the in, in this individual breed has had for centuries and to, you know, hopefully do, do a little bit to improve upon them. So do you, are any of your dogs descended from the original ladies Pekingese that you started working with? They're not. They're not. But they're all descended from a dog that I, you know, um, got in the early, in the late 70s. And, um, you know, through a little, you know, the bottom, you know, female, what we call the bitch line. And um, they are they come down from from that little dog. So your dogs, if we looked at the family tree, your dogs would have this little female dog at the top of the tree. At the bottom of the tree, actually. So um, it would would be at, be at the bottom female tail line. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm thinking of the tree is upside <laughs> down. Uh, you know, I'm reading, a, I'm reading a book right now on um, Elizabeth of York from England, and if you look at the family tree, she's at the top, and it moves its way down through Henry VIII. So <laughs> um, I, I just happen to have that book on my mind at this moment. So yeah. I'm thinking that way. But she's your founder yeah. dog. Yeah, she was the beginning, and there's been a lot of additions uh, to the tree since, and a lot of, um, you know, dogs that I've imported from Scotland or United Kingdom, or I've used uh, dogs here in the United States that have contributed to, you know, this family of dogs that has uh, proven to be successful, you know, in the show ring. And also it brought a lot of pleasure to people, you know, that keep them for pets or companions. So now this is what intrigued me about David's dogs, because he and I have talked about this before. So notice he just said that his dogs came from some came from Scotland. But you say Pekingese, that must come from Peking, China. So talk about how these how you got Pekingese from Scotland, which seems like you should have some sort of Highland Terrier coming from Scotland. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, so many of the breeds originated in the United Kingdom, you know, so many terriers and sporting breeds and everything. Pekingese originated in China. They originated in Peking, and they were the favorites of uh, the royal 
you know, um, Chinese emperors and dowager empresses, and they raised Pekingese. They were only allowed to be owned by the Chinese royalty. And it wasn't until the 1860s that Pekingese were taken out of China, and there was one called Ludi that was presented to Queen Victoria, I believe in 1864. And then there were a few others that uh, made their way over. And from there, the modern Pekingese uh, breed, you know, was created, you know, with a few additions here and there. But up until that point, they weren't known to the, um, you know, outside of uh, China, you know. And the British were invading China at the time. And um, and everyone else. Part of, yeah, 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 yes. And the Pekingese were part of the loot. And the one that was presented to Queen Victoria was actually named Ludi. <laughs> so I Be- think because it was part of the loot? <laughs> well, I would imagine. <laughs> That's great. Now, did, did, were other, did anybody bring other breeds back, or, or was the Pekingese really the Chinese dog of the day? It really was the Chinese dog of the day. I, I don't know if, you know, I think other breeds were already like the pug had already arrived in, in, in the, you know, Europe through traders that brought mm-hmm. it to Holland. And, you know, I think the Pekingese were, were kept in such seclusion in the palaces. And uh, theft of a Pekingese in China was punishable by death. So they really did not make it to the outside world until, you know, China was invaded and the palaces in, in particular. And uh, I think they uh, got the Pekingese from the Summer Palace, the Forbidden City. And um, from there, they, they came to England. And, you know, the rest is history. They were the most popular toy breed up through the 1960s. And, um, you know, everybody, you know, of a certain age grew up with fond memories of a little Pekingese that was either a cherished pet or a dog that chased them around the house or, or have some, you know, interesting memory of a Pekingese. Yeah. So then you got your love of Pekingese from this lady in Newark, Delaware, but like, were you completely attached to that breed and then just stuck with it? Did you ever consider another breed to raise and show? Yeah. Well, originally, you know, had, had the lady in Newark, Delaware raised, Great Danes or Old English Sheepdogs or Terriers, you know, I was so desperate for dog uh, contact that uh, I I would have probably fallen in love with any breed. It just so it was just a, a you know fate that the Pekingese you know were her main breed, and I just fell in love with them and got along with them, and they seemed to get along with my personality also, but. I, I also have raised Maltese. I had a couple Brussels Griffons years ago. I had a few Pugs. I've owned a Chow Chow. I've owned a Shih Tzu. Um, you know, and as a handler, I showed a lot of different small breeds mostly. You know, most of the toy breeds at one time or another throughout my handling career. And also uh, Las Opso and Boston Terriers and Tibetan Terrier on occasion. A few different breeds, you know. Odd a lot of different breeds, it sounds like to me. 
Yeah, 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 mostly small dogs. You know, I've had a bearded collie in my home and a, and a couple Great Danes at one time and a Whippet. So, you know, over 50-some years, there's a, a, a bit of a canine, diversified canine traffic. But uh, And I've enjoyed, you know, a lo- most of those breeds, of, you know, wonderful characters and everything. But the Pekingese really is what... Uh, seem to suit me and is it uh, the hair the face the personality it's really more the personality and the character you know that they're you know all the breeds um have their unique personality and the Pekingese you know they're they're sort of a uh you know they're so smart you know and they're so bad sometimes and there's so stubborn and exasperating, but you know they, they um, they're a challenge, you know. But they're they're a challenge that you sort of love to, you know, delve into, and uh, you know I, I enjoyed I, you know trying I, to make I, them you know. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> I heard that dachshunds were the most stubborn. I don't know. I think Pekingese would give them a run for their money. You know, there there is a few, there are a few stubborn breeds, but I've Pekingese are very stubborn. You know, and but Dachshunds, I would imagine probably are too. But you know, Dachshunds, you know, they they had a job to do. They they were you know they would burrow in underground and things like that. Pekingese had no job. That their job was to be a really good looking ornamental pet in the palace and be a companion. So they were used to everyone catering to them. You know, <laughs> they did not work. They, they, they didn't work for a living. People yeah, worked yeah. for them. Yeah. It, and, you know, <laughs> so. for, for listeners out there, these most dog breeds came about because people, humans, needed them to do a job and so the long wiener dogs were bred to go down into burrows and capture things and bring them back out and you know the sheep dogs were all bred to herd sheep and so they most dogs breeds came about because you needed it was a job you had a job to do and you needed to do it and and you needed the right dog for the job so right exactly and and, and many breeds were were downsized, you know, for, for their jobs too. Like in Yorkshire, England, they needed uh, a small dog to work in, in factories that would be a ratter and a mouser. And so they bred, you know, Scotties and a few other breeds down to create the Yorkshire Terrier, which, which is now a toy companion breed. But originally they were, they were produced to, you know, work in the factories. You I don't know, think you and, want to tell uh, any of my Yorkie patients that they were they were <laughs> bred to work in a factory because they don't think that. I guarantee you that one. They think they're supposed to live in a handbag and go to lunch. <laughs> yeah. Right, but they they uh, they actually had to work for a living at one time, and uh, you know through selective breeding, these people uh, needed needed a, a dog that could do their job. You know, whether it was herd, you know, or go go to ground and dig out a badger or, or catch rats in a factory or on the streets. So let's talk about the dog show ring, because this is something that fascinates me. And I sort of I know something about it from watching and not hardly anything when you really get down to it. So 
we, you know, you watch Westminster Kennel Club show on TV or any of the other dog shows that you can see. There's this little table, and someone like you comes out and plops the dog on the table, and the the judge is like fluffing around with the dog. But what are they really doing when they're they're they've got this dog on the table? Well, a breed like a Pekingese um, requires a very close table exam because it is a heavily coated breed and its structure is so unique they have to be really examined closely every breed has a standard of perfection that is um, sponsored by by the parent club and then the american kennel club sponsors these all breed dog shows like westminster kennel club and but every judge you know when they're examining a dog on the table their brain is computing what the AKC and the Pekingese Club of America breed standard requires this animal to be. They are checking to make sure that it has a short neck, as the standard describes, a pear-shaped body, heavy bone, sound elbows, a good rear end with moderate angulation, a level top line, open nostrils so the dog can breathe well, even though it's a brachiocephalic dog, a, you know, flat top skull. And then after they do all the examination, they lift up the dog to make sure the dog is in good weight and has a good solid chest and everything. The dog is put on the ground and required to move up and down and then around in a circle to make sure that, it, that he's sound, that he's not exhibiting any lameness and that he's also moving typical for the breed, where because of Pekingese with their short legs and pear-shaped body, they're gonna have a slight rolling action in front, which is accentuated by the coat flowing. But those, you know, all these things go into a judge's decision on how they pick, you know, what dog they're gonna award number one, you know, at a dog show. I actually think Pekingese look like a hovercraft when they're moving because if you've got one with a beautiful flowing <laughs> coat, does it? You can see they're moving, but you can't really see their feet at all. It's just like this hair monster moving around the ring. Yes, you know sometimes if they have a, an exceptionally heavy coat, you don't really see the legs as you might in some other breeds. But a trained eye is gonna is gonna see more than you think and they're going to realize that this dog is you know moving correctly for for its breed and carrying itself with its head up you know with a, a sense of pride you know looking like a little little royal dog as they should so then when you've got the dog trotting around the ring the judge is looking for is it lame does it have a typical gait but usually when I see the handlers out there, they got a treat in a bag or they're holding something between their fingers or, and they're trying to keep that dog's attention on something. But what are, what are you trying to do with all those treats that I see out there on the floor? Well, basically, you know, it's, it's, it's a process of training your dog to be rewarded for, for showing itself off. And, you know, the handler is trying to make the dog look alert stand in a certain way, gait in a certain fashion, so that it's appealing to the judge. You know, you don't want your dog falling asleep in the middle of Madison Square Garden, so you have little chicken treats or liver treats or 
whatever whatever the dog might like. I once had a dog that responded to potato chips. So I would have a potato chip in my pocket, and that's what would bring him to life. So, um, you know, but they're just, it's just basically training traits. And uh, because the dogs have to be alert for, you know, quite a, quite a while in the ring, you know, they're, they're giving the dogs treats, you know, rewarding them for going down and back and striking a pose, rewarding them for standing in line patiently and still looking alert and bright eyed and exhibiting, you know, what that particular breed should project. That must be really hard in terriers because terriers has gotten to be a gigantic group in in these all breed shows. Those poor terriers have to wait a really long time to get their turn in the ring. They they do, and they you know they rest in between um, you know when other dogs are are being examined and everything. But then once once all the dogs have been examined, then the group is you know the judges looking down the group to try to select their winners, everybody has to be alert, you know. And terriers, just by their very nature, they can get kind of worked up just seeing another dog, you know. They, well, they yeah. get on their to- They get on their toes and, you know, sometimes get feisty. And, you know, they're actually sometimes a little easier than some of the other breeds, you know, because they are so keen to begin with. So... I always find when I watch you run around the show ring that your gait is is actually the awkward one the dog kind of moves at its own pace and because it's got those little short pekingese legs your gait is a much more it's more like a fast walk than a run where those poor people that show great danes are like loping around uh, the <laughs> ring you know how how do you get how do you, how did you come up with the way that you move in the ring well, I believe that a dog should walk at their own pace. You know, if you have a slow breed, well, then the handler should walk slow to complement the dog. If you have a dog that trots, then you, you've got to, you know, take a longer stride, go faster and everything. But I mostly just try to work with the individual dog, cause, and I usually try to show the dog on a, a loose lead so that he's the one that's controlling his speed. And that, to me, is what makes a Pekingese beautiful when they're out there and they're in full coat, they're alert, they're in good physical condition, and they're gating at the speed that's correct for them. The natural tendency when one gets into a, you know, a major competition and your adrenaline is going is to go a bit faster. I always have to try to tell myself, now, David, slow down, you know, don't get too carried away, stay calm. And if you do that, the dog usually stays calm with you and then just flows at their, their natural speed. But I just work with the dogs, you know, and, uh, you know, I don't, you know, a lot of people go faster, but I believe, you know, Pekingese to show off their true gait, they have to go slowly and at their own pace. So there, you clearly have a um, mindset about being a handler. If I want to be a handler, where do I get to go to school to learn that? Well, there are no handling, handling schools, you know. Some people have a knack for it, and uh, they can just sort of develop it on their own. Most people, as 
a teenager or a young adult will apprentice with other professional handlers that are successful and they can learn the trade that way. And they can go to, um, you know, dog shows and work from the bottom, bottom up and, um, you know, become an assistant handler and then, um, you know, eventually, you know, be proficient enough and learn how to take good enough care of the dogs when you're on the road and try to uh, avoid any of the problems that could arise and uh, be responsible for everyone's dogs, you know, but it takes, it takes a long time. And, you know, uh, there are, there are a lot of good handlers. And if I was a young person, you know, I would, you know, tag along and try to help somebody out and, you know, pick up some of their wisdom, you know, but there are, there are no schools. So this is, I I like the, I like the word you chose apprenticeship. Um, You know, you, you learn from somebody else. You sort of apprenticed yourself to the lady in Newark, but you didn't actually know you were doing that at the time. You just thought you were doing dogs. Yeah. I I just really wanted to be a caretaker, but one thing led to another. And um, after I worked for her for a few years, I worked for a lady that, used to live in New York City called Kay Jeffords that had a an extensive Pekingese kennel in Pennsylvania also. And back in the day, she had, oh, lots of dogs. People would be horrified to hear, but she had a couple hundred dogs. But back then in the 70s, you know, it wasn't untypical for a breeder to have a large number as long as they had adequate staff and, uh, you know, the means to care for those dogs. But I learned a lot there just, you know, really by taking care of a large number of dogs mm-hmm. and different different types of dogs. And, you know, different situations come up and you learn how to keep a cool head and, you know, how to, how to handle it. But, uh, you know, ex- there's nothing like experience. You know, you can, uh, you know, and you as a vet, I'm sure, you know, you can have all the book learning, which is very, very, very valuable. But. You know, when you actually have to deal with certain situations and different types of dogs and even in the ring, dogs that are a problem that don't want to be a show dog on the day and, you know, how to how to get them stimulated or going in the right direction. It all comes with experience. So I have to say that, David, this 30 minutes has sped by and we haven't even had a chance to talk about wasabi who's already retired and he's only four years old or 28 years old in human range but we've had such a great chat about dogs and dog shows that we've absolutely run out of time but maybe i can get you to come back another time so i just want to take this minute to thank my special guest david fitzpatrick of pequest pekingese kennels and handler extraordinaire of Pekingese dogs, including Wasabi, who won Best in Show at Westminster Kennel Club in 2021. Thanks so much for being here with me on Ask Vet, and I hope our paths cross again sometime at a dog show in the very near future. And when we come back, I'm going to take, I'll have the animal news and take listener questions. We're back with Dr. Ann Hohenhaus on Ask the Vet. Call now with your pet questions on Sirius XM Stars. Welcome back to Ask the Vet here on Sirius XM Stars Channel 109. Uh, We're going to start with the animal news and then I'm going to come back and answer the questions that you called in last month. So on the animal news, we've got great stories this month. 
It's time for Animal Headlines, the biggest animal news from across the world. Our first story is out of Costa Rica, and it's almost too good to be true, but it really is. So one day while walking on his own property, Michael Farmer spotted something shiny and quite unusual. And there sitting on a leaf of a guava tree was what looked like a small metal object, maybe like a coin glistening in the sun. But all of a sudden it started moving and he knew it wasn't a coin. What the farmer found was lucky enough to be one of the world's most unique beetles, the Crescina limbata, a species known for their silvery reflective shells. And when Farmer picked up the beetle, she stopped crawling and played dead and allowed him to get a better look. He said this beetle was one of the most beautiful things he'd ever seen in nature. And later he learned these beetles are quite rare, although they were once common and found all over the region in Costa Rica. Sadly, this species has been hard hit by habitat loss and from being caught and sold to collectors of these sparkly bugs. But thankfully, this beauty will keep on living because Mr. Farmer put her back on the guava tree and watched as she quickly flew away. If you want to see what Christina limbata beetle looks like, just Google the dodo and Christina limbata beagle for some amazing photos. Christina is C-H-R-Y-S-I-N-A for those of you who are getting ready to look it up. Here's a story from Halfways Around the World from Australia. There are a lot of sheep in Australia and a newborn lamb fell off a truck that contained other sheep. Thankfully, this lamb not only survived, but is thriving due to the care and treatment provided by Edgar's Mission, a farm sanctuary in Australia. They've named the little lamb Constable Sam, and it was born on the very day of the accident. So this was a newborn lamb that fell off this vehicle. He broke both of his front legs, suffered a fractured skull, and a serious injury to one eye. The wonderful folks at Edgar's Mission did everything they could to possibly keep him alive, including surgery. And after that, they fed the little guy and got him to trust his own hooves while he was recovering from his broken legs. It took three months, but Constable Sam made a complete and incredible recovery and even more happy news. He was recently adopted to a forever home with two of his sheepy friends. Edgar's mission documented Constable Sam's recovery in a most compelling video that will surely tug at your heartstrings. Just Google Constable Sam, the lamb who survived against all odds. What a great story that one is. Next time you're on the road and pass an 18-wheeler, the driver might just well have a furry family member along for the ride. And it could be Tora the cat. This spirited feline has traveled through 42 of the 50 states with her dad, uh, 16-wheeler driver David Durst and his partner Destiny. Their mornings begin at 4 a.m. when David takes Tora out for a long walk on a leash. Now, if you already forgot, remember Tora is a cat, not a dog. But Tora walks on a leash. And they also take several short walk breaks throughout their 10-hour work days when they're driving things from here to there in their 16-wheeler. At each destination, David, Destiny, and Tora go exploring. They went on a canoe trip in California. Tora loved it. And hiking in Utah. 
During the drive, Tora keeps busy with her toys in the cab of the 16-wheeler, but her favorite thing to do is just look out the window. David said that having Tora along for the ride makes him stay active and have more fun on his long, kind of not that exciting days as he's driving around the country. Just Google Tora the cat driving in the truck for a great video and some wonderful photos of this traveling feline. Here's a bit of breaking news about truckers and dogs. Memphis Animal Services is launching a program geared towards pairing truckers with pets in need of a home. And according to supervisor Katie Pemberton, while it seems like life in a truck will not be for every dog, lots of dogs, uh, there'd be nothing better than riding in the car with their person all day. Uh, I know plenty of dogs that when you say, hey, let's go for a car ride, they're like at the door and wagging. What a wonderful program. And so we here at Ask the Vet wish Memphis Animal Services lots of success with this amazing effort. And one last news bonus. The finalist for the 2022 Comedy Pet Photo Awards was just released. And the images of horses, cats, dogs, and even a bunny and a hedgehog are priceless. This competition hopes to raise awareness about animal welfare and the vital role pets play in our lives. Just Google the 2020 Comedy Pet Photo Awards. Did you know that the Schwarzman Animal Medical Center started out as a temporary clinic 112 years ago to provide veterinary care to animals who couldn't afford it? And today, AMC continues to give back to the community. In 2021, the Schwarzman Animal Medical Center donated nearly $5 million in veterinary care through its 13 charitable funds that help pets in need. AMC's 120 veterinarians, which include 43 board-certified specialists, work together over 20 specialties and services to manage 60,000 patients each year. Simply stated, about 160 pets come through AMC's door every day. Now, don't forget, if you've got a pet health question, just call and leave me a message. It's that simple. I'll answer your questions on next month's Ask the Vet. The number to call is 866 866- 993-8267. And talking about questions, let's take a few of them from our listeners. Our first call today is about an 11-month-old doodle. Hi, my name is Dylan I'm located in Houston, Texas, and I have a question for um, the vet. My problem is I have an 11-month-old, almost a year-old, a doodle, um, and she she went into heat at about nine months old, and when she went outside to our side yard, our fenced-in area that has artificial grass, um, after she finished her heat, she got a yeast, uh, I'm sorry, a UTI. So when she went to go um, urinate outside, it stung her. So she's associating the sting with the artificial grass. So now she will not go outside and potty anymore. Um, I have to take her into the front yard with natural grass, which is um, which is not fenced in. So just wanted to know if there's anything I can do to change that behavior and get her to understand that it's okay. She can go to the bathroom um, on the artificial grass and um, see if there's any insight or anything that, that the vet may have in regards to artificial grass um, and pets as well. Thanks so much. Bye. 
So first for our listeners out there, this dog has a urinary tract infection and the owner used the common veterinary abbreviation UTI um, to describe what was wrong with her doodle. Um, So my first concern would be if the dog is still reluctant to urinate in this area where the owners want her to go, are we 100% sure that this urinary tract infection has been resolved? And so I might make a trip to the veterinarian to ask that particular question. Another thing that sometimes happens is that dogs with urinary tract infections have bladder stones, and so they're still uncomfortable. Like the antibiotics make them not have blood in their urine anymore, but they still have stones. So that would be another thing that I think would be worth having investigated as an x-ray to be sure there were no stones there. Then if that is all clear... I would um, start to do positive reinforcement about the area with the artificial grass. That means take the dog out there even when they don't need to go to the bathroom and give them some sort of treat because they've gone there. So using positive reinforcement, take the dogs out to the artificial grass, play with them a little bit, throw the ball, give them a lot of treats, and get them to like going out to the artificial grass. And once they're happy to go out on the artificial grass again, then start trying to stay out there long enough that they need to tinkle when they're out on the artificial grass and give them 8 million treats to be positive about them going on the artificial grass. But I think it needs to be a a very positive reinforcement situation. If the dog won't go on the artificial grass, then if she has to go on the real grass in the front yard, I would not treat her for that because that's not the behavior you want to reinforce. So treat her only when she's tinkling and going out on the artificial grass, which is where you want to be. Positive reinforcement and some high-value dog treats go a long way in these situations. So good luck to the doodle in Texas. I hope um, this problem resolves quickly. Next, we have a question from Christina in Illinois. Hi, my name is Christina, and I'm from uh, Belleville, Illinois, and I was just calling with a question about my uh, puppy's nausea. She gets severely carsick um, within the first two, three minutes of being in the car, and I didn't know if you had any recommendations to help um, ease her nausea and her Thank you. Bye-bye. So, Christina, I think a trip to your veterinarian can fix your problem very easily. There is a medication specifically made for car-sick puppies. Uh, The name of the medication is Serenia. It's very safe, and uh, it once you it works very quickly so you decide to go somewhere in the car you give it and probably within half an hour or so you can go where you need to go with the puppy in the car and that should help this renny should really help with the car sickness the ultimate good news is that most puppies outgrow car sickness maybe then when they get to be a year or two old so this won't be a forever thing but there is absolutely your, something your veterinarian can do to help the puppy uh, so i hope this turns into many happy car rides for you and your new puppy christina and finally we have a question about a medication in an older dog hi i have a question uh, what are the long-term effects of galuprant usage in an older dog? Thank you. 
So galloprant, for those of you who've not heard of it, is a medication for arthritis in dogs. And if you think about it, arthritis happens most often in older dogs. So this is a medication that veterinarians use a lot in older dogs. It belongs to a family of medications called NSAIDs, or non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. And the classic non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs are drugs like um, carprofen. Um, that was the first one on the market. And these drugs um, affect a lot of different pathways of inflammation. Galloprant was developed to have a narrow spectrum of action with the idea in mind that it would have fewer side effects overall than the less or, or the, the NSAIDs that were kind of wide activity. However, that doesn't mean that there aren't some precautions that you should take if you use Galloprant in your dog. First of all, it's only to be used in dogs over nine months of age and over eight pounds. So that that's something uh, to, to understand is it's not a little dog medicine or a young dog medicine. Um, you would never want to use Galloprant with other non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. So if your dog is already taking an arthritis medication, you may need to have a break between the one they're on now and starting Galloprant. And the same is true if your dog is on any kind of steroid like prednisone to treat allergies or for some other disease that's being managed. So if your dog is taking any other drugs before you switch to Galloprant, be sure your veterinarian knows what drugs your dog is on because Galloprant then might not be the right drug at that time. Now, Galloprant's been looked at with antibiotics, with heartworm medicine, flea and tick medications, and vaccines, and there doesn't seem to be any interaction with those very common drugs. Uh, so if your dog is taking them, there's not any reason they can't take Galloprant because of those drugs. We do know that the Galloprant has side effects, and those side effects include a decreased appetite, uh, tiredness, uh, and vomiting and diarrhea. So if your dog is taking Galloprant and those things happen, check with your veterinarian right away to make sure you shouldn't stop the Galloprant. And the labeled directions on Galloprant say that dogs receiving that drug should be monitored for changes in their blood protein level and changes in their liver test. So Dogs that get put on Galloprant need to see their veterinarian intermittently to make sure that it isn't causing side effects, although it was specifically designed to try and minimize the side effects of arthritis treatment in dogs. So I hope that answer helps the owner of this older dog and that the medicine makes uh, the dog a whole lot better. And now we're going to take another break, and when we come back, we'll have news from the Animal Medical Center. We're back with Dr. Ann Hohenhaus on Ask the Vet. Call now with your pet questions on Sirius XM Stars. Hi, and welcome back to Ask the Vet here on Sirius XM Stars Channel 109. And now we have news from the Animal Medical Center. If you're a pet parent, then we know you're looking for the most accurate and trustworthy pet health information. And you need to look no further than the Animal Medical Center's USDAN Institute for Animal Health Education. 
The Usdan Institute's free pet health library is the leading online user-friendly platform with all content verified by the veterinary experts here at the Schwarzman Animal Medical Center. The USDAN Institute also presents free virtual monthly pet health events and publishes a weekly newsletter packed with timely health information. Pet parents can also stream all the previous USDAN pet health events from our website, as well as AMC's Animal Lovers Book Club. You just need to go to www.amcny.org backslash USDAN events. USDAN is going to have a virtual event on September 5th, which is our annual celebration of life, a pet memorial event. It'll be held on September 5th, 2022, from 6.15 to 7 p.m. Eastern Time to remember the pets that we have lost and the lives we shared with them. The New York Times best-selling author, Alexander Horowitz, will share words of comfort along with other featured speakers. As with all used dandy events, registration is free, but it's required because if you don't register, we can't send you the Zoom link so you can attend. So once again, it's at www.amcny.org backslash events. And just posted at amcny.org is Pet Food Basics, choosing the right diet for your dog or cat. The video of this event held in July is just now available to stream and contains a wealth of information about how to pick a pet food for your pet. The speaker for that event was board-certified nutritionist, Dr. Lisa Weath, who is really a lovely person, number one, and a very smart nutritionist, number two. I want to thank David Fitzpatrick for joining me today on Ask the Vet. And as always, thanks so much to all my listeners and callers and to everyone who has downloaded the Ask the Vet podcast. We appreciate your support. If you haven't downloaded the podcast, you can download Ask the Vet on any of the major podcast platforms. Want your question answered next month on Ask the Vet? The number to call is 866-993-8267. Want to do social media and not podcast? We can do that for you, too. You simply need to check us out on social media. On Facebook, it's The Animal Medical Center. Twitter and Instagram is AMCNY. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast so you'll get the episodes as soon as they're posted. Have a wonderful rest of the summer, everyone. And I'll be back next month for Ask the Vet here on Sirius XM stars channel 109. Bye, everybody.